You're listening to the Team Guru Podcast, bringing to life the theory and principles of leadership. Welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. My name's David Frizzell, and in episode 69, we're going to be talking about neuroscience. If you're a regular listener to the show, some of the problems you're about to hear me talk with my guest about are very familiar. A fast-paced world in which our brains are overloaded with information, a life in which we struggle to fit all the important bits in, sometimes flying too close to stress and burnout, the battle to ensure that, amongst it all, our performance stays at a high level, that we're able to adapt to the change presented by our ever-evolving world, all the while we are as leaders expected to find time to develop the people around us to help them grow and reach their potential. When we put it like that, it's a very daunting prospect, but my guest in this episode is here to help us understand it all from the point of view of our poor old overworked brain. Kristen Hansen is a neuroscientist with a career worth of experience working with organizations and individuals to help them understand their brain and its link to performance. She's the author of a neat little book called Traction, The Neuroscience of Leadership and Performance, and she joined me to share some fascinating insight into what makes each of us tick. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Kristen Hansen. Kristen Hansen, welcome to the Team Guru Podcast. Hi, David. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for coming on. Hey, Kristen, I'm looking forward to our conversation tonight because you are here to represent what is obviously an emerging body of knowledge in the leadership world, the idea of the way neuroscience can help us to develop ourselves as a leader, to develop all of those type of skills that we need to be a leader, that right brain, interpersonal stuff that we all know is so important. So thanks for coming on the show. And hey, can you just give us a little bit of a brief summary of, of why you're someone that we should be listening to when it comes to neuroscience? What's your CV, Kristen? <laughs> so David, my CV basically in a nutshell is that I've done 20 years of sales management and management roles in large Australian organizations. And my passion became what does it take to get the very best out of my team members, whether they be salespeople or otherwise. So I studied coaching and then I wanted to get to the heart, I guess in, in a way, I wanted to understand the left brain, the science behind people. And so mm. I'd already been fascinated with getting the best out of people all my life, I guess, but really to get to the heart of what does it take and how do we explain it to others was what I was fascinated by. So I studied neuroscience of leadership as a postgraduate certificate, world's first masters that were set up ever and really have been working now with large corporate organizations, all the big names that you can imagine, I guess, in terms of corporate, because these guys are interested in better leadership, better high performance capabilities, coaching cultures, etc., and also leading through change, which has become a massive, massive 
learning area for anybody in business today. And uh, I think sharing some neuroscience and the science behind that really helps in particular the technically oriented uh, brain deal with the less technical but quite important part of leading change and leadership and performance. So that's it in a nutshell. That's you in a nutshell. So you come from a, uh, a sales background. That's pretty interesting because we all know that nothing is driven by performance more than the world of sales. Uh, numbers around sales, getting the most out of yourselves, getting the most out of the people who are working with you and for you. It's all very tangible, isn't it? It's all up on a scoreboard and your salary is so aligned with your performance, how many sales you get over the over the line. So it's no wonder you were driven to this really pointy edge. How do I get the best out of myself and the best out of the people I'm working with? That's great, Kristen. Now, look, I really like the way you've laid out your book. You talk about five really common challenges. You describe them as organizational challenges, but they're challenges for an individual as well. So in order for us to come across this awesome new information that you're going to deliver for us, this understanding about neuroscience and how we can use it to better understand ourselves and the people around us, what I thought we'd do is run through these five common organizational challenges and get you to layer on top of our understanding here a bit of a neuroscience wisdom or, or science. These challenges are, are common. We, we all understand them. We, we're all very familiar with them. And, and if you listen to my podcast with any regularity, they'll be really familiar to you because they're such a common theme. The five are, and, they, and the, we land on some key words here, think, regulate, engage, adapt, develop. So these are yours, Kristen. I love them. I love the simplicity. I love the accessibility of it. And I'm really looking forward to that, as I say, that extra layer of neuroscience over top. So let's think about the first one, which is think. And that's all about cognitive overload. And this is one that as a a leadership consultant, I think about regularly, you know, everywhere I go, Kristen, the leaders that I work with, people at that, you know, whether they're at GM level or, or above that kind of sort of top end of middle management up to the, towards the, the cusp of executive. That's the, the most common client I have. Every one of them, almost to a person, has their days ruled by back-to-back meetings. And then in between back-to-back meetings, their inbox is overflowing with emails of questionable quality. So where, I ask, do these people get time to think? When speed and pace and back-to-back meetings and emails rule their world, obviously they don't have time to think. They can't think straight. And these are the type of people who, as we know, and they joke about it, I always think it's so sad when, I, when they joke to me about it, they prop themselves up with coffee and sugar and they're overweight and all those things. So tell me, what's the cost to us neurologically of structuring our day so that it's crammed full of emails and meetings? And, uh, and how do we create the time that we so dearly need for reflection? Well, that's all a great question. Lots of loaded questions in there to answer, but... I'll give it a go. I'll give it a go. (laughs) So I guess the first thing is we have to recognize that technology has, I guess, taken over our lives and it's meant that we're very crowded mentally. Meetings and technology combined sort of make up, as you mentioned, most senior executives' lives. In fact, people have lost the art of prioritizing. People come in to work or Mm. they've already started their work at 6 a.m., 7 a.m. by answering emails And their day starts with emails, goes to a meeting, continues with emails, goes to a meeting. 
continues with emails and two days later they still haven't started that really important project or they still hadn't given any thought to how to be more strategic or they still haven't given any thought how to develop that person in their team that's not performing at the level that they really want them to because everything is back to back. So I think the very fact that you've identified that is across the board is really important. One of the things to recognize is nobody is ever going to give you reflection time. So we have to be very self-disciplined about creating that reflection time. Now, that could be when we're exercising at six in the morning. It could be on the bus trip on the way to work. Some people decide that that's their reflection time. They turn off their device. They don't even listen to music or they listen to some quiet, relaxing music and just let their brain allow it to sort of go where it needs to go. Some people book in reflection time into their diaries. So some senior managers I know actually take time out. They book the nine till 10 o'clock slot for themselves. And while they're still organizing themselves or prioritizing, Mm. it still means that they're giving themselves time to think. Some people book themselves into a meeting room without a any technological advices for half an, half an hour, you know, once or twice a week, you know, just to sit. Other people go for a walk into the park. Other people take proper brain bakes at lunch and they may go for exercise or what have you as well to sort of just shift between that busyness and into a bit more of a quiet brain state. And some people that I work with and some CEOs or what have you do things like literally book three till five every Wednesday afternoon to head to the beach and uh, sit at the beach with their sunglasses and their notepad and just allow themselves to think and write. So the range of ways that people are addressing that are varied. But I guess what we've recognized here is the cost of not having that reflection time means significantly less insights and less reflection time on how to move forward, how to be more strategic, how to be more innovative. It actually increases uh, significantly the amount of stress and overload, cognitive overload that we're experiencing. It certainly means that we're needing more sugar hits and more unhealthy food, I guess, becomes our driver because we're stressed and we are trying to make the brain work at levels that it actually needs a brain break. And even things like brain breaks, we've forgotten to have them. So I think there's a certainly there's not a lot of people in business who don't already appreciate that they're cognitively not at their peak uh, some of the time because they're not looking after how they're managing themselves. But people, I think, are quite lost at how to manage that overload when there really doesn't seem to be any space for them or their thinking. So I think it's time to take charge, you know. Whether it's a half-day energizer session or a comprehensive team and leadership program, Team Guru's unique approach could be just what the doctor ordered for your organization. So presumably, if we're attending these meetings and, and most people will, will identify with the back-to-back meeting kind of an issue, if we're identifying this, these meetings, if we're attending these meetings, there's something there for us, whether it's a valuable conversation or some new information about the business, whatever, whatever it is, if we're not giving ourselves time in between those meetings to let it sort of percolate, to let it move around our, our brain and synthesize with the other things that we know, then the value of that information is really reduced, obviously. As you point out, no one is going to give us that time. And I've, I've heard the quip before that essentially in our diaries, we tend to, to just schedule in interruptions. 
We schedule meetings and phone calls and things that interrupt us from our real work, which as professionals is thinking, being thought leaders and and using our brains, using our skills. So I, I like that concept of, as you say, going out of your way. No one's going to give it to you. We've got to be really self-disciplined at creating it. And it moves nicely onto the the second problem that you've you've started talking about. If we continue to work at that pace where we're cognitively overloaded, obviously it's going to lead to only one place and that's stress and burnout. Can you talk to us a little bit about the extent to which stress and burnout is in the Australian workplace, what it's costing us and what it's doing to us neurologically if we think we can survive in that sort of ridiculous cognitive overload, fast-paced manner? So interesting, I guess there's not a company that I'm working with where the executives are not in a majority of what we would call a threat state versus a reward state. So a threat state is feeling frustrated, nervous, worried, concerned, anxious, overwhelmed, etc. Reward state is all the positive emotions, calm, interested, curious, excited, happy, etc. So every single time I work, oh, hey, I love yeah, that every concept, time. Kristen. That that concept just in itself. Wow. Okay, great. I love that threat state versus reward state. Yes. Every time I um, work with a, a group, I ask them to, I give them the definitions of threat and reward, and then I ask them to gauge whether they would sit slightly more on the reward or slightly more on the threat state, and then I get them to leave their hands up if they feel they're majorly in threat state, majorly in reward, etc. And invariably, we have people who are 60 to 70% in general more in threat state or in threat state and 30 to 40% in reward state. There are some organizations that I've found that that's different. So, I'm not across the board labeling that, but I'd say that's the average. So, what we're experiencing overall is much more of this cortisol and adrenaline rush continuously we are experiencing amygdala hijacks, which is the part of the brain that notices and detects threat or fear. And that is on overload where in our cavemen days, we only needed to deal with that every time a bear was, you know, in our sights or whatever it was, it was not on all the time. And we're experiencing that. And that's why the World Health Organization has identified that stress-related illnesses is the number one challenge, number one health challenge for all the developed countries. And so, We have to recognize globally that it is costing us from a humane perspective. I mean, obviously, we're talking about things where countries and people don't have enough to eat. But from a developed country perspective, we're dealing with the other end, which is we're too stimulated and we've got too much on mentally and stress-related that we're dying, in some cases, very young from stress-related illnesses that even if we're not sure are stress-related You know, if you've ever read a book called The Telomere Effect, it's a fascinating book that will help us understand exactly the cost of stress in our our lives. So I don't have the current figure. I've worked with figures, you know, over the last years, but I don't have the current figure. And I guess I'm more concerned about the human cost than the the business cost, though the business cost is absolutely significant. Stress leave, all the related illnesses of, you know, heart attack, stroke, etc., that people go through. It's just so massive. But what we need to understand as individuals is that in order to be sustainably employed in a leadership role, we need to manage ourselves and have strong self-leadership and be able to regulate those emotions promptly 
and not stay in the threat state and not think that it's a healthy place to be. And I think that's one of the things that neuroscience has taught us and also given us some strategies to shift out of that threat state, you know, quickly so that we don't maintain that threat state all day and as much as possible uh, shift back to reward. Hey, before we get you to talk about those strategies, Kristen, I'm amazed by this. This is great. I I love the language around threat state and reward state. I think that's one of those really golden concepts because we, we can understand it so clearly. Talk to me about this cortisol and adrenaline rush. First of all, you talked about 60% of people being in this threat state, I guess, most of the time or all of the time. What a horrible concept that as human beings and living in the, the wealthy, developed world, we're putting ourselves in this situation. We, we no longer die of starvation, but we've worked out a way to stress ourselves <laughs> out in, in other ways. Crazy stuff. What are, we, what are human beings about? It's pretty bad, this, hey? This, yeah. It is it's amazing. Why don't we just find a way to relax and enjoy what we've achieved as a, as a species? But no, we've got to find new ways to kill ourselves. But anyway, cortisol and adrenaline, what, what is actually going on with people? Because I've got, you know, I'm one of these people, I probably don't spend much time in the threat state. I probably am lucky that I don't feel anxious about those kind of things or threatened or under the pump or whatever. I have a, a fairly calm approach to my work day, which I I recognize and I value. So I can't imagine what's going on for individuals who are in that threat state. What is giving them these rushes of juice in their body that we used to get when a bear was chasing? Is it when the boss comes and asks us for work? Is it when to do some work? Is it when they have to speak in a meeting? Is it when someone examines their own, a piece of work that they've done? When is this happening? Well, that's a great question. So first of all, it's happening because people are feeling overall overwhelmed with being able to get through their work and the expectations have increased because the global organizations that or the global economy that we have now means that we are competing. Every organization is competing against the world's best, not just the local community best. And so technology has meant that everybody has to step up and that even in, that includes government organisations. Uh, many organisations that we're working with are going through massive change restructures, and that's because of technology, because of globalisation, because of increased competitiveness, and because of the requirement of society or the competitors or the consumers or the stakeholders for them to reduce costs, be more efficient in this modern world. So there's everything from emails and meetings, which we've already mentioned, to management expectations, uh, to lack of autonomy, to absolute through change, lack of sense of certainty. These sorts of things have risen, I guess, regularly in our day-to-day as key things that are drivers of threat. And really threat comes back to this concept, David, is that if we have a manager who's not happy with us or if we have to change and do something differently to how we've done it, Our amygdala, the part of our brain that detects fear or concern for us, is really looking at our survival. And with change comes, will I have a job? Will I be able to feed my family? Will I have a roof over my head or will I end up homeless? And unfortunately, that part of the brain reacts very quickly. And if you like, it sort of catastrophizes, you know, I've just missed a deadline. And that part of the brain can see, you can sense that that part of the brain is imagining and you're using your prefrontal cortex to do this, almost imagining an outcome that is really negative. And because of the uncertainty, 
we go, sometimes can go all the way to what does this mean and how does this impact us? And I think what the point is here is that we overreact. You know, somebody's half an hour late delivering something to us or, you know, we're not getting the service that we expected at a store and we only have 15 minutes. We don't have an hour so we don't have the time to be flexible or relaxed about that. So I guess I think that this concept of these neurochemicals, everything is faster, harder, quicker, expectations are higher, and change is regular. And they're the things that are creating a general sense of threat in the workplace at the moment. And of course, as human beings, we have a tendency to worry about a whole bunch of stuff that is out of our control, things that might happen down the track, two steps down the track. And as you say, we catastrophize and we imagine it so clearly that our body experiences it, the stress associated with it, as if it is actually happening to us. That is our tendency as human beings um, when we could well remind ourselves just to manage the things that are in our control. That's a, a really nice place to start. But You also said that just recognizing that we're in this state, if you're someone who is in threat state rather than in reward state, recognizing it is a really good place to start. And then you talked about some of the strategies that your techniques you can use to turn yourself around. What are they on a really practical level, Kristen? Well, let's just start with a very basic 30-second circuit breaker. So if we're in threat and we've recognized that someone stole our car space and we're running late or we've received an email and somebody has said, I can't get that to you on the deadline because I've got my own deadlines and suddenly your amygdala, you're part of your brain whose responsibility is the fight, flight, freeze response, makes you want to write an email that's pretty terse back to that person in that moment. We need something that will help us at least uh, reduce the threat state, if not get back to neutral and even sometimes positive. So 30 seconds, if you breathe, label, reappraise, that's, we just call it blah, BLR, the blah response. Basically, if you can take 30 seconds before you respond, you breathe deeply. And I just mean like a nice <sighs> type breath, not a, <sighs> you know, <laughs> I'm freaked out type breath. A nice deep breath um, can make a big difference. And we're basically pumping some more oxygen back to our prefrontal cortex in a sort of in a quick sort of way. If you label the emotion, give it a name. So cognitively own how you're feeling rather than non-consciously just experiencing it. So call you say I'm feeling really frustrated or I'm feeling really overwhelmed or I'm feeling overlooked or I'm feeling frustrated or concerned or I'm anxious. It doesn't matter just one label though, not 500 labels. <laughs> Find the one word that is most appropriate and you need to use your prefrontal cortex for that. And then you uh, reappraise uh, the situation. You say, well, how important is this going to be in 10 years? Or what can I learn from this? Perhaps this person needs more warning or more checking in on than other people I deal with. And for next time, I will deal with this differently. So in that 30 seconds, we're asking ourselves things like, What can I learn from this? What can I be thankful for? How do I put this into perspective? And we're just having a quick chat with ourselves over this very short space of time. And what that does is it actually does build back the cognitive response versus the emotional default non-conscious response that is actually what happens. And I love a saying by Damasio, we are not thinking beings that feel 
we are feeling beings that think sometimes we can add because often we respond emotionally and via default and to protect ourselves. And that 30 seconds just gives us an opportunity to say, is this the best way to respond? Am I going to get the best out of the person that I'm dealing with or the situation if I respond now? And I think given that we recognize that when we're in a threat state, we have a narrower focus. So our peripheral vision physically narrows. We have less insights. We're problems oriented. We're less connected to others versus when we're in the reward state, the exact opposite. I personally, and people who learn this, I guess, try never to make a decision or make a response in that first 30 seconds when we've recognized we're in a threat state. I love it. I love that. This is such a simple thing, the 30 seconds, breathe, label, reappraise. The breathe is good. I've heard before that when we get anxious, you know, some people, when, when we're talking to a large audience and we're struggling to breathe, we're, we're literally starving our brain from oxygen. So we're not at our best. So the breath is helping with that label to be able to articulate. Hey, I, I really relate to this one. If I'm able to describe, even if it's just to myself with some really clever words that really nail a situation, for some reason, that just helps me feel better about it. If I can articulate what's going on in my mind and what I'm seeing around me and that last one reappraise what I can learn from it. What, what is in my control here? How can I influence this so it doesn't happen next time or it's less likely to or the impact is reduced or whatever it is? That's great. That's nice and simple. So we've talked about think and regulate and you've seeped into the third one, which is engage. And that's where we're talking about performance. I like the point that you made that today it's incumbent on us to be less manager and more leader. Structures are flat. This is multifaceted, but one of the reasons is that we've got a new generation of people who come, who are coming into the workplace who don't like to recognize hierarchy. People don't love the old hierarchies anymore. Things are flattening out a little. Um, we're, we're asked to do more leading, less managing. We need to be more engaged in terms of our people skills and our ability to influence, how does neuroscience help us with this little part of it? Great. Well, so I think the first thing we need to recognize is there's a lot of emotional intelligence required to do a good job here in stakeholder engagement and influence and being able to understand, as you mentioned, that we have to influence people more than we have to boss them around these days. It sort of was easier when we had somebody who we just would say, do this and do it by three o'clock or, you know, don't come back tomorrow. Yeah, I'm the boss. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, that doesn't work these days. And we also have not only the flatter hierarchies, et cetera, and Gen Ys and younger people who will not tolerate, I guess, being just bossed around. But also we have metric systems and what have you where people somewhat report to one manager and somewhat report to another manager. And so everything has changed and shifted that means that a manager approach really does not work effectively compared to a leadership approach these days. And so I guess the leadership era has never been more profound, I don't think, than in the last five to 10 years and going to be the only way forward for people who are in positions of any sort of authority and influence. And I think the other thing to recognize is that some younger people are coming through and they have stronger leadership abilities than previous and existing managers because they're being taught differently. And so what we have to recognize 
those who are already in the marketplace, already had previous roles as managing and what have you, we have to learn some great emotional intelligence skills, some social motivators. We have to understand, I think, a little bit more about what makes people want to do things rather than have to do things. And that's where both emotional intelligence and neuroscience comes in. So the emotional intelligence, you know, being able to pick up other people's emotions, understand your own emotions and the impact that they're having on others, things like emotion contagion. So emotions are highly contagious. So if we're in a positive mode mm. and mood, so is everybody around us. If we're in a negative threat state and we start a meeting in a threat state, well, the entire team's in a threat state. Whether we put a fake smile on or not, people will obviously read our tone and everything else. So to create a high-performance organization or team, we need to create reward amongst the threat. And I see that as the biggest challenge for a leader today is how do you not only shift your own threat to reward, which is why self-management and those regulations uh, skills are so important, but how do you help your entire team shift from threat to reward amongst all the threat? And uh, we find that there are some really key aspects to that. And that comes from the field of social cognitive neuroscience, things like making sure people have that certainty of understanding what you can tell them about the change, what you can tell them about what your expectations are and being clear, being able to give people autonomy, being able to give, like we mentioned before, not micromanage them, clear on your expectations, give them a deadline or a time frame, but then being able to coach them and ask them, how would you like to approach that? Or what are your learnings from your previous role that you'd bring into this? Making sure we're connecting with people as individuals. Again, it's nowhere near acceptable enough to just have a boss subordinate relationship. We need to know who they are, what makes them tick. Do they want to go to Japan? Do they want to have kids? Do they love you know, job sharing? Do they want flexibility because they're caring for an elderly parent? It doesn't matter what it is, but if we don't take on board the holistic person these days and understand who they are and what motivates them beyond the paycheck, we're really missing the ability to really, I guess, develop and retain talent. And talent is, of course, one of the key prized possessions today. And it takes a lot more than just a pay packet, which is flexible and very transient. We need to create things and we need to engage people with our why. We need to understand their why. And we need to be able to really help people build on those capabilities. So autonomy and certainty, connection, helping people build their sense of status, making people feel safe. These are some of the things that we look at from a neuroscience perspective and a people perspective and an emotional intelligence perspective that I think can make a big difference in leading people well and being able to influence not only direct reports, but also stakeholders or other people that you may not have direct influence or direct responsibility for, but you do need them to do some work with you and for you. Do you want team and leadership development programs that actually work? Contact Team Guru today so we can start the conversation. Wow, Kristen, you have just outlined right there what it means to be a leader. That was just fantastic that you have talked about the difference between being a manager and a leader just so beautifully there. You taught me a new term as well, social cognitive neuroscience, and that is giving people certainty, as much certainty as you can give them. Be generous with the information that you share because you understand that uncertainty 
knocks people off off guard and they go into kind of survival mode rather than creative, innovative, doing awesome work mode. So give them as much certainty as you can. Give them autonomy. Trust that you have brought them into the team for a reason, that they're bringing with them experience and knowledge and can-do kind of an attitude. Give them that freedom to express themselves and show you what they can do. Give them clear expectations. That'll help with that. If you're going to give them autonomy, be really clear about what you expect at the other end. Coach them, help them, encourage them to bring old skills and old knowledge and stuff from previous jobs. Connect with them as people. Know who they are. Where do they want to go on holidays? Who's their partner? How many kids have they got? What are their life dreams? What are they going to do when they retire? Get to know the holistic person. I love that. That is just absolutely fantastic. And You've given it a really nice neuroscientific label, that social cognition. Thank you for that. That's something that I've learned tonight. But we also know that those habits that we've just described are things that people with high degrees of emotional intelligence, people who are good people people, do anyway. That's right. Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. So good people people do do these, David, but I also find that good people people under threat, don't do them very well. And I guess I've classified myself as a good people person. That's why I sort of went into this to help people who weren't maybe so intuitive around the people stuff. But I have to say that myself and every other great people person that I have met in the last five years is struggling to do this on a day-to-day basis if they're under threat and pressure themselves. So what happens as we become under threat, and this is the biggest issue, is that leaders, even great people people who know how to do this, if they're in threat themselves, they respond in that default way, a survival way, and suddenly somebody's life's interests or somebody getting the best out of that person or remembering to say good morning, how was your weekend, or, you know, being able to give some autonomy and ask the person, how would you like to do it? Basically, David, let's be realistic. A lot of that actually flies out the window if, as a leader, we're, if we're in threat. As soon that's as you're right. under the pump. And so that's why we call this, yeah, we say that more than ever, that management is almost default. Leadership is intentional. You have to be intentional every minute, and this is where mindfulness comes into it. If you are not mindful of your own state, if you are not cognizant of the impact you're having of others in that moment on others, you are able easily to, whether you're a bad, good or amazing manager, you are able to create a threat state with others and not be that people person that you really admire, whether you have that ability yourself or, you know, in in truckloads or not, you can default to that person that's not somebody that you want to be. And that's, I think, what we need to work on. That's so true. And that that's a look in the mirror and be honest with ourselves moment and, and accept that, that is, that's what happened. Even if it's not, you're not anxious, you're just under the pump, you're just busy, you just got stuff on. One of the first things that goes out of the window are your connections with the people around you. Great point. And the, and the other good point that you made early on in that part of the conversation was the idea of emotions being contagious. And that's something else that I've noticed leaders are are less aware of than than they could be. The fact that people around them, if they're a leader, if they're in a senior role, people are looking at them for how to be. How should I be feeling right now? Are we okay? Are we going well? Is, are things terrible? And if you're giving off a certain vibe, people will catch that like a cold. 
So emotions really are contagious. And it's, it's not just senior leaders who need to be aware of that. Hey, like you have all the way through our conversation, you have hinted very strongly at the next one. And number four, so we've gone through think, regulate, engage. Now we're to number four, and that's adapt. So that's this concept that we're all really familiar with. The only constant today is change. We get that. Our managers who struggle with themselves and their own change being asked to lead others through this change as well. So that's an interesting concept and we've we've all seen that and we all know how that goes. How does change occur in the brain? Are we being realistic here in this modern world to suggest that we can go through this constant state of change and stay sane? <laughs> I actually don't know actually the answer to that because I find that a big question in the bigger context. What I do know though is that it from a human perspective, we are designed to change and we're struggling with some of it at the moment for sure. But neuroplasticity, which is the brain's ability to change and that that discovery recently is the biggest discovery about the brain in the last 400 years. And really what that is, is whatever we put attention to will we'll really reform our brain. And so whether we're talking about here forming new habits like training a manager to ask before they tell that could be a new habit formation, being able to adapt to this new world of how do I shift to be more mindful and more intentional than more in default? How do I learn to reprioritize when for three years I've basically let my emails and meetings run my life? All of these habit formations, as well as leading through change, we need to be agile, we need to be flexible, we need to be a little bit more bending in the wind as it seems. And we need to have a little bit more trust that we'll be okay. And that the fear that comes from whether it be change or uncertainty or even threat, that we will be okay. So this resilience piece becomes important. Going back to regulate, a big part of regulate is how do you build resilience and how do you do the things outside of your life that help you be more adaptive and that's making sure that you're getting enough rest, diet, sleep, exercise, the list goes on. So that's a key piece rather than just running yourself into the ground to try to keep up with the change. The other thing to keep in mind is that new habit formation or being able to help change ourselves or change others, the key to neuroplasticity is very simple actually. It takes attention and positive feedback to the goals that we're aiming to move towards. So we forget that sometimes. As simple as, you know, needing somebody to come in on time or what have you and and then not recognizing that that person has come in on time and then managers saying things like, well, I'm not going to congratulate them or thank them for doing their job, but hang on, yeah. we are the yeah. leaders okay. of change. Don't, don't be an influencer That's then. right. Yeah. We're the leaders of yeah. change. So right. change takes positive feedback and, uh, and attention to that change. So we summarize that as mind the gap. So be mindful, be an intentional, mindful leader of what you're trying to change in yourself and others. Have a goal. So that's the G. Make sure you're clear on the goal and then pay attention and positive feedback, the AP. So mind the gap which creates synaptic plasticity, which creates new neural pathways and new habit formation that will replace the old and be flexible and uh, regularly attend to those. And that's what I believe is helping me and many of the leaders that I work with uh, be adaptive in today's world, I guess. 
it's reassuring to know that this this concept of neuroplasticity means that we can create new neuropathways. I can create new habits, new understandings, things that I thought were locked in like an old computer system that I've been using for 20 years that suddenly changes and I've got to learn a new one. And I never think I'll be able to because this old one is so familiar. The good news is that I will. And if I just continue to reassure myself that I will be okay, and if I'm lucky enough to have a leader who gives me a bit of attention and praises me, gives me a bit of positive feedback when I start displaying the new behaviors, then chances are I'll be even more okay. That's nice and simple. And and it's nice to know that there is some hope there. We as human beings know how to, no matter how old we get, can create new neuro pathways. Good news. Now we're up to the lucky last one now, Kristen. We're up to our fifth. We've gone through think, regulate, engage, and adapt. And now we're up to develop. And this is this wonderful concept that as a leader, we've got a few jobs to do. Of course, we've got to create a, we've got to paint a, a beautiful vision to the people that we work with so they know where we're heading. And we've got to make our expectations really clear so everyone knows what their role is. And all those other wonderful things you talked about, like autonomy and clear expectations. But this last bit is this develop piece, this coaching bit. It is our role as leaders, as much as anything else, to develop the people we work with, to make them better people, more mature professionals, better at what they do with a clearer path for their future. And you point out that this concept, the 70-20-10 learning model that so many workplaces and so many L&D departments are working with, the idea that 10% of our learning happens in a workshop or a classroom, 20% happens through mentoring, and 70% happens with on-the-job experience. Great. We all get that. It's widely accepted. It works pretty nicely. But you say that that bit in the middle, that 20% of learning that takes place with mentoring, we're leaving that up to chance because broadly, we don't do mentoring that well. Yeah, that's right. So whether we're calling it mentoring, coaching, I guess there's many different schools of what is the distinction between mentoring, coaching. I guess what I see coaching as and a, and a role of a leader is to be able to help people solve problems themselves and develop their own sense, feel empowered to do their role and solve the problems that they face every day. And I think one of the biggest challenges that we face is that managers still see that their role is to solve people's problems and they fix people's problems continuously. Someone comes to them with a Mm. challenge Mm -hmm. or a problem, they see that their role is the fixer of that problem. And what we're doing is training people not to think. We're training and people to come to us as soon as they're stuck because we'll provide the answer. What that does is does not free the manager to time up to be reflective, strategic, forward thinking, etc. They're problem solving all day. Secondly, it doesn't develop the person that reports to them capability to really own, uh, take ownership and accountability for the area that they're working on. So I'm not suggesting that somebody who's brand new to the role does not get some guidance and some mentoring, let's say right up front. But I think in general, most of the managers that I'm working with recognize that our default, mine too, everybody's default, is to solve the problem that is given to us rather than to park our potential solutions and ask that person some questions. So we really see coaching as an ask, not tell approach. And we summarize that very briefly as ant, 
if you can think of one thing, an ant knows how to leverage, right? An ant is the best leverager (laughs) in the world. And if we want to be an ant, which is essentially leverage our capacity with the people in our team, we need to ask, not tell. And that's our very simple little phrase that forms the basis of a brain-based coaching methodology that we have called Grow Wise, which takes the traditional grow model to another level, a brain-based approach model where we look at model where we look at whole brain goal setting, insight, uh, stretch for the subconscious, and explore using implementation intentions to get people three times more likely into action than without those implementation intentions. So there is a model um, and a method behind the madness, of course. But I guess the key message here with coaching is that people uh, and great talent are after their development, their own development. And if we're just managing them, what they're doing today, and we're not developing them Mm. toward their potential and their passions, then we will lose them. And I think we will often lose them. And if we can help them on that journey, sometimes that means they may leave our organization, but we've been a leader then and we've led them and it means we'll lead others. That's another nugget of leadership gold, Kristen. Look, this has been absolutely fantastic. I I have loved that last little bit just as much as the rest, just that basic concept of, of ask, not tell. Coach them to think for themselves rather than to solve the problem. And as we were talking about earlier, under the pump, if we're under the pump ourselves, we're busy and feeling under pressure, that's one of the things that will go out of the window. We'll just answer a question, solve a problem, rather than help our people to learn, to think for themselves and grow and develop. This is gold. Uh, We're going to have to wrap it up because that is about the end of our time together. But where can people find you and your work, Kristen? Uh, Hiding. No. (laughs) (laughs) I doubt it. uh, Where can you find me? Well, so our website is enhancenperformance.com.au and our you can email me directly, of course, at kristen at enhancenperformance.com.au or my business manager, Lisa, at enhancenperformance.com.au. We work with all organizations. We also occasionally run some open programs. Obviously, we have a book that you've just mentioned, um, which we're really happy to be able to share that covers these concepts in much more detail. So there's a a few different ways, I guess, uh, that people can uh, get in contact with us and uh, happy to, you know, have conversations around where to from here. And some of that might be a personal journey as an individual. Some of it might be an organizational journey or wanting to talk with me about how potentially some of the aspects in their workplace could be shifted or changed to be more innovative or a coaching culture or things like that any of that, happy to have a conversation and uh, look at how 2018 can be a really different year, I guess, sustainable year and learning how to get the very best out of our brains, something that we have never known much about Mm. and have such a burgeoning opportunity, I guess, to really peak in that area now in the next few years. Fantastic stuff. Kristen Hansen, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Thanks so much for having me, David. It was an awesome interview and I really appreciate how much you're interested in these sorts of topics as well and your audience as well. So thanks and be very happy to speak with you again another time. And that was Kristen Hansen. 
I really enjoyed our conversation. Kristen was able to put a layer of neuroscientific understanding across so many of the common ailments of life in the modern world, ailments that have been the topic of so many episodes on this podcast. I found the concept of being in either a threat state or a reward state so powerful. It's a simple distinction, but we all see evidence of both those mindsets all around us, even in ourselves. What gives me most joy is that discoveries about neuroplasticity tell us that we're able to reform connections in our brain when we put attention into thinking in new ways. On a personal note, this will be the last Team Guru podcast for 2017. We're about to welcome a brand new member of the Frizzell family, so I'm going to take some time out to enjoy that, be with the family, and relax over Christmas and New Year. But worry not, I'll be back early in the new year with a host of new and interesting guests. Before I sign off for the year, I'd like to thank my audio editor, Jerson, who's been doing a fabulous job for the show for a few years now. And I'd like to thank Dan, the show's producer and media guru, who's been on board for the last six months. Gentlemen, you make me sound so much better than I really am. I truly appreciate the work you do. And for our growing horde of listeners, thank you so much for your company in 2017. I wish you and your family a very healthy and happy Christmas period, and I look forward to being with you all again in 2018. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now.